0: And uh, if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, just kind of raise your hand, we have Bibles in the back, um, and one of our guys will bring, bring you a Bible. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, you can turn to the table of contents, and you will see the book of Matthew under the New Testament, and you can find the page number and... The page. Matthew chapter five is where we're going to be digging in today. Let's begin. Uh, let's begin with prayer. Pray with me, Father. We we have uh, praised you. We have uh, been reminded of your uh, victory over sin, over death, over Satan, over evil. We've been reminded over the fact that we have been drawn then into a relationship with You because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and how often we forget that, how often we take advantage of Your grace. Lord, we thank You for Your forgiveness of sins. We thank You for assuring us of Your forgiveness of sins in in Your Word. And as we dive into Your Word right now, we do ask that You speak through these words. Speak through me. God I pray that anything that I say that ought to be forgotten will just quickly leave our minds and that your truth will be sealed in our hearts that we will make much of you through listening to your word that you will soothe the wounded this morning that you will take down the proud this morning those struggling with temptations of every kind that you will encourage them remind them that their sacrifices worth it those who are in despair that you will lift them up that you will be their peace that you will give a peace that passes all understanding that you remind us of your love for us remind us of your grace for us and from that place that that we will be motivated to to offer you thanksgiving and to, to want to please you from that place of love from that place of grace lord we thank you for pursuing us We thank you for wooing us. And I pray that over the next few minutes that we will see nothing more than the face of Jesus Christ and we will rely on nothing more than him. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, We have been studying the Sermon on the Mount. uh, This sermon that covers three chapters of this book of Matthew. The sermon by Jesus himself. It's this grand picture into the, the normal life Uh, the normal ways of the kingdom of God, what what the citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. So we began with his introduction, which was sort of him laying out the the values of the kingdom, the reversed, upside-down values of the citizen of the kingdom of God. And then we saw how Jesus said that he himself is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, of everything that the, New, the Old Testament was pointing toward, looking toward, Jesus fulfilled all of that. And so then last week we began to see how Jesus is taking these commandments from the law and explaining what they mean, explaining and contrasting the true meaning of these commandments with the sort of perverted uh, meaning of the religious leaders, the popular meaning Of their day. And so we covered two last week. This week we are covering two more. And so if you look at me, uh, with me at verse 31, read along as I read. It was also said, Jesus says, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And so here Jesus is addressing what was common. During that day, this this divorce and remarriage, it was common, get rid of her, bring her back, marry her again, and the religious leaders of his day, the culture of his day were diminishing the law of God and making it a common practice. As long as you just give a certificate of divorce, then you'll be okay. And so Jesus here is saying that citizens of the kingdom of God are to be absolutely committed to their spouse, to their marriage. He permits Divorce and remarriage for a specific circumstance which we're going to get into. And then he broadens this. He broadens this issue of commitment into every aspect of our lives. Look at the next one. Look at verse 33. He says, Again you have heard that it was said to those of old, old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so here he broadens this issue of commitment to every single decision that we make in our lives we are to be people, the citizens of the kingdom of God are to be people of their word who have yeses that simply mean yes and no's that simply mean no, that we are to be a people of our word. Now, why is this necessary? As we dive into this passage, as we look into Jesus' teaching in this Sermon on the Mount from 2,000 years ago, why is this necessary? Why is this important for us today to be looking at this and to be diving into this. First off, I just want to kind of say this, we live in a culture that does not like commitment. We are afraid of commitment. Commitment maybe scares us as citizens of this world more than anything else. This affects every aspect of our lives. It affects our spiritual walk. It affects how, uh, how we uh, look at church and church membership. We, we keep an arm's length this affects the way we look at marriage, whether or not we want to be married. And so we choose to cohabitate, choose to experience the benefits without the commitment. So broadly speaking, we just have a we have an issue with commitment. So I, I do think that this is important, amen? Now, this is also, I want to say this, this is why we preach expositionally. This is why we go through books of the Bible and big portions of the Bible. Because issues like divorce and remarriage are not like the topics that we would generally just choose to preach on. Like, oh, I just want to preach on divorce and remarriage today. Can't wait for that one. But we go through and we preach what 's here, right and so we 're going through the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus brings up this issue of marriage, divorce, remarriage, and then broadens that to commitment we 're kind of combining these two together today Now, for some of you, uh, as anger and lust was last week, for some of you, this is very personal for I mean we 're not talking about uh, lofty ideas, pie in the sky sort of conversations. But for some of us, when we talk about divorce, when we talk about remarriage, it's these are very personal issues. But listen, what I want you to know is this: that is the Bible. Like the Jesus and the Bible is like the most realistic teaching there is. Okay, the Bible is the most realistic book. There is. So if you don't like realism, if you don't like to get real, if you don't want to deal with the the problems that we actually have in life, then stay away from this book. But if you want to get real, if you want to be realistic with life, the Bible is the most realistic book because it faces life as we know it. But now listen, I want to also say this. It's not Jesus' goal here in his sermon to bloody our nose and then leave us bleeding. But as he approaches these things and as he shows us what life ought to be, the kind of life that we are called and commanded to live, as he points out the problems, as he points out the problems underneath the problems, he also points us to the solution in the same way. And what we find is whether we are married, single, divorced, remarried, wherever you are at and whatever state you are in, you find that Jesus grabs you and commits Himself to you. So that's where we're going today. And what I hope you see is Christ through all of this. Amen. Now, We live in a culture today that uh, despises commitment. And I would place underneath that commandments, rules that we must live by, law. We actually see law and love as two separate things. Someone can give you law binding you. They don't love you, but someone who loves you gives you what? Quote, unquote, starts with an F, ends with freedom. (laughs) Quote, unquote, freedom. We love this concept of freedom, don't we? And when we think of freedom, we think of freedom from anything that would restrain us. Anything that would define a life for us. Any kind of law, any kind of commandment. So here's my example of how this has sort of infiltrated our culture and how we believe this. I want to give you an example. Um, I Often in pre-marriage counseling uh, with couples, I will go through family history. So I'll say, okay, how was your parents' marriage? How was your grandparents' marriage? How was your great-grandparents? How, and we, we keep on going as far back as you know. How was your great-great-great-great-grandparents' marriage? Right? How was their marriage? Like as far back as you know, what do these marriages look like? How were they, do they stay together? Like, what kind of patterns are in your family? What I often see as I'm going through this with couples is great, great, as, furth- as, fur- as far back as you can remember, what we often see is a pattern of marriages that are, are together. They stay together. They may not have loved each other, all right? That's another conversation right now. But they stayed together, all right? They, they didn't divorce, all right? So they stayed together. And then we get to this generation of the baby boomers, all right? Sort of of our parents' generation, if you would. And everything goes haywire. Like, everything just goes crazy. So general, I mean, this is just general. This isn't everybody. I know there's always exceptions, but generally what I see is marriages that are intact and then this swath across this generation of Multiple marriages, multiple fathers, multiple divorces. So what happened? So this is my example. This is what I want to get to. In the 1960s, there was this thing called the free love movement that kind of went viral, all right? Hit the mainstream. This idea that we, uh, if, if, we could, if we could free ourselves from these moral restrictions, from these predefined restrictions of how we're supposed to do marriage and have sex and all of these sorts of things, if we can free ourselves from these moral restrictions, then what we would find is quote-unquote, starts with an F, I remember, freedom. We would have freedom. We could be free. Free love. We could be free to express ourselves sexually. We could be free to just love whoever we want to love. And if we fall out of love with this person, it's fine. Fall in love with someone else. Be free. Don't let anything bind you down. That's not love. And so we, I, 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 culture believed that we found some kind of freedom. Now this is what I find going through pre counseling. That ends not with freedom but that kind of quote unquote freedom ends with bondage. Bondage to broken families. Bondage to multiple fathers. Bondage to kids who never knew their father. Bondage to heartbreak. Bondage to loss. Bondage to divorce. Bondage. Bondage. It's not freedom. You see, in America, we have this concept that if we can remove ourselves, especially from moral laws, then we can find freedom. it doesn't make sense to us, but in the ancient world, the idea of a good king giving his law was synonymous with a good father loving his children. You see, when we begin to look at the law of God, the commandments of God, these are not separated from his love. God loves us. Therefore, from that love He gives us His law so that we may be free. So what we see here is God's vision, His understanding, His commandments when it comes to marriage, divorce, remarriage, and commitment. And so with humility, I want to, enter into this text and I want to submit ourselves to what God thinks about these issues, amen? So what we see here, and this is what I want to point out, what we see here are three three glimpses, if you would, of God's design for humanity on these issues of marriage, sex, and commitment. Three glimpses of God's design for humanity on these issues of marriage, sex, and commitment. Are you ready to dive in? All right, number one, God has always placed a high value on the covenant of marriage. Look at verse 31 with me. It was also said, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say, now here, As Jesus has been doing, he's addressing yet another bad interpretation of the law. So Jesus is not contrasting the old law versus his new ideas and his new teaching and his new law. What he's doing is this. He's contrasting the true meaning, the true interpretation of God's commandments of the old law with the perverted and just bad interpretations of that were popular by the, among the religious people of his day. So if you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, I actually am going to put it on the screen for you, I believe, is that right? No? Never mind? Not a problem? If you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24, you can find it in the table of contents if you're new to the Bible, uh, or you can just listen along as I read. Uh, I, I want you to see the, the text that Jesus was working with here and referring to as he's showing the people of his day the true interpretation of God's commands. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, it's in the middle of the law of Moses, we see, we see four verses on divorce and remarriage. Let me read them to you. It says this, verses one through four. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found... Some indecency. Everybody see some indecency. It's going to be an important word to remember. If he's found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, she departs out of his house. If she goes and becomes another dude's wife, I, I inserted dudes. Better translation. And the, la- the, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, in, it was popular in Jesus' day to interpret some indecency right there to basically mean whatever you wanted it to mean. There was a, literally a school of thought. That said, if there's something that you just simply, as a man, as a dude, find indecent in your wife, something you don't like. She burnt your food. Um, She is not able to have children. She has a birth defect that you don't like. Her breath smells bad. I don't know. There's some indecency in her. You can just simply write her a certificate of divorce, and send her on her way. This was common. Now listen, first century, divorce and remarriage, then divorce and remarriage, and divorce and remarriage was common. Jesus was addressing something in that day that was as relevant as it is today in our own. So Jesus is saying, this is what you've heard it, you, you've heard it said. You've heard, as long as you give her a certificate of divorce, as long as you just kind of let her know, then you're good to go. But I say, he says, if you look back in Matthew chapter 5, he says, but I say. Now that's massive. What Jesus is saying is this. I want you guys to understand this. All right, think of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Popular interpretation of the day. This is the popular interpretation. Jesus says, but I say. Meaning this, my interpretation is the correct interpretation. How do we know how to interpret the Old Testament? It's because Jesus showed us how. So Jesus' interpretation of the Old Testament law is the correct intended interpretation of the Old Testament law. But I say to you, so what did God mean in chapter 24? Is, 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 is uh, Jesus elevating marriage Higher to what uh, the status that God originally intended? Not at all. Jesus is not elevating it higher than what was originally intended. He's rather showing us what God's original design for marriage indeed was. So in Genesis chapter 2, we see the creation. We see Adam and then Eve from Adam. And God presents Eve to Adam as a gift. And Adam says, alas, bone of my bones. And he he embraces her as his wife. And then in chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis, this is God's original intent design for marriage. He says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, or cling to his wife, and they shall become One flesh. Everybody say one flesh. That sounds pretty permanent, doesn't it? So what we see then in Deuteronomy 24 is because of the hardness of human's heart, because we are cold, because sin had entered into the world, what was happening at the time was rampant, just dehumanizing of women. And men just simply taking a wife and then getting rid of her for no reason. Taking another wife, getting rid of her for no reason, and taking back his old wife. A devaluing of woman and a complete disregard for this concept of one flesh, God's original design for marriage. And so what's happening then in Deuteronomy 24 is not simply saying, hey guys, just give her a certificate of divorce and then you're good to go. What's happening in 24 is God is regulating something that's destructive. So it's it's happening and God is saying he's regulating divorce. So if there is some indecency which we're going to get into that and a man gives her a certificate of divorce what he's saying is is look dudes, you can't take her again. If she goes on and she marries someone else, she's not yours anymore. So the point of 20 Deuteronomy 24, I believe, what Jesus is saying is this fellas think about what you're doing think about the consequences of divorce you're losing her she's not yours for the taking anymore you see jesus is showing us god's original intent for marriage he's referring i believe back to genesis chapter 2 this image in the garden of adam and eve coming together as one flesh. Is Jesus elevating marriage higher than God's original intent in the Old Testament? The answer is absolutely not. Jesus is restoring marriage back to its original design. He's showing us that God has always valued the husband and wife relationship, one flesh relationship, marriage. A friend of mine who was an atheist, he self-described as the most convinced atheist there was, and then God converted him because God does that sort of thing. And um, he was explaining to me the other day that... uh, when he was an atheist, he didn't understand marriage. It didn't, it, marriage just didn't, didn't make sense. I mean, I, I get the concept of romance. And, you know, we like the movies, like The Notebook, where, you know, they die old together, like it's beautiful. But beyond that, beyond this, sort of these concept of romance and feelings, he didn't get marriage. And he said, it wasn't until God converted me. And I, and I saw... That God, first of all, God is a God of commitment, and if God is a God of commitment who commits himself to us, well, then by all means, it starts to make sense that we commit ourselves to another. And then in addition to that, he saw that we, humanity, are created in the image of God, and so God is three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as one God, Three in one, and man is created, humanity is created in God's image, both male and female he created them, and the two became one. It's like, oh, now it makes sense. It's because we are created in the image of God. And so marriage, the coming together of man and woman as one flesh, reflects and commends and makes much of God's image to the world. This was God's original intent for marriage. That two would come together as one flesh and would remain one flesh until their flesh died. My friend said Christianity, for him, just began to make sense of everything in life. It made sense of the world that he Lived in. No, for us today, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is essentially saying this You have heard it said that if you are not happy in your marriage, then it's okay to get a divorce. I'm not happy. I can't do it. I'm miserable. I'm miserable. Listen, the kingdom of this world that we live in will tell you get a divorce. It is ridiculous that you would stay together if you're not happy. Jesus would say, You have heard it said, that if you have lost feelings of love for your spouse, then get a divorce. We've heard these things, but I say, Jesus says, but I say You've heard it said that if you're no longer happy in your marriage, if you're no longer feeling the feelings of love in your marriage, then get a divorce. But I say, listen, Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, the, the, uh, the subtitle for his book is this, and I think you don't even have to read the book after I read you the subtitle, all right? Though you might want to. The subtitle of his book is, is simply this. Let me read it. He says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if God, listen to this, designed marriage not just so we can be happy, not just so we can feel complete and fulfilled and have someone that we can lean on and make us smile and watch a movie with on Friday night? What if God designed marriage not to make us happy, but more so to make us holy so that we can be refined, so that our, our, the, the, the dirt and the filth that's inside of us can be exposed because that's what happens when two people commit their lives together. So that the lack of commitment in us can be exposed. So that we can repent of the sins that we didn't even know were there. What if marriage is not designed to make us happy, but it's designed so that we may be made more holy, so that we can become more and more like Jesus Christ and reflect the image of God more and more and more. I can testify that in my own marriage, when my wife and I stopped looking at each other as our primary source of happiness, trying to find satisfaction and happiness in the other person. And we began to see that just maybe this marriage thing is not designed for happiness, but it's designed for holiness. And we began to see one another as ways that we could kind of bump up and sharpen and strengthen and grow each other, expose things in the other. When we began to see that, we were freed. We were freed for true joy. Amen. Listen, if you want to crush your spouse, if you want to crush your spouse, try to find your happiness in them. Amen. Often I hear people say things like, I don't, I don't really need God. Because my wife and family is that that's my everything. Listen, if you want to crush your wife and your family, make them your everything. Because, listen, they cannot be your God. They'll do a very poor job and you will crush them as you try to make them your God. As you try to find happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment and belonging in them that you can only find in God. Friends, you will crush them. This is why marriages fall apart. It's not because we choose to hate each other. Because we're actually trying to find happiness in each other and we can't. We never deliver. You've heard it said divorce if you are not happy, but I say, Jesus says, but I say. Now, this brings us to our second lesson that we see here. Number two. God has always placed a high value on, I'm going to call it, the marriage act, all right? Everybody with me on that? We're going to talk a lot about sex, and so just to be coos this morning, we are going to codename it, the marriage act, or the act of marriage, and I actually intend to be a little bit obnoxious about that, all right? We're going to kind of just like define it as within marriage, all right? It's the marriage act. I think if we actually started calling it the marriage act, it might actually change some things for us. So this morning, let's just embrace that title. Let's nickname it the act of marriage. Everybody on the same page with me? You guys all know what I'm talking about? Are we like connecting the dots here? Okay, good. So God has always placed a high value on this act of marriage marriage on the marriage act let me explain this to you when we look at genesis chapter 2 verse 24 therefore he said, it says a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to and cling to his wife and they shall become one flesh there's the there's that word the sense of oneness the sense of coming together Now, what does that mean? What does one flesh mean? What does this coming together mean? Now, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, it alludes to this the fact that this one flesh union, this one flesh relationship produces children. All right, are we tracking here? One flesh produces children. Now, I only know of one way to produce children. All right, maybe you can think of another. But I think I can only think of one way. To produce children. So one flesh must mean, at least in some sense, this act of marriage. Now, We skip forward to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul is talking about making a case why it's not a good idea to have sex with a prostitute. And what he says, he alludes to this as well. He says, you become one with her. You become one with a prostitute. This idea of becoming one flesh, becoming united. Listen, I find it fascinating that the very first instance, the the first time that we see sex and marriage talked about in the Bible... It uses this term, one flesh. This sense of coming together as one. Now, you might ask, what is the problem with sex outside of marriage? And here's simply the answer. According to the Bible, the Bible calls for our entire lives, our whole lives to simply make sense so this this act of marriage the very act of it is a physical act that is to picture and demonstrate a much bigger broader and deeper reality that it's not to be an act done separated from a broader sense of coming together it is ultimate vulnerability. It is complete openness. It is complete sharing of one another. And it is also complete embrace and acceptance of one another. And so, according to the way the Bible thinks, if we can say that, it just simply doesn't make sense to separate the act of marriage from Your future from your dreams, from your bed, from your bank account, from your house. Tim Keller put it this way. Keller said, don't share your bed if you're not willing to share your bank account. It's just kind of like making sense of life. Like, this is a coming together, listen, of two lives, two people, two individuals coming together physically And it is, according to God, to represent the broader coming together of two lives. So if you're not willing to share your bank account, keep your bed closed. Don't share your bodies completely with one another. Complete openness with one another. Complete acceptance of each other while you continue to have separate dreams. While you continue to live separate lives. Separate lives futures, it just simply doesn't make sense. So this act of marriage, this act of marriage, this coming together in the Bible is that one flesh. It is how a marriage is consummated. It's how two people become one. It's not just simply standing saying your vows. That's important. But this act of marriage is the coming together of two lives. It demonstrates that deeper reality. And listen to this. Married folks, every time that act of marriage is performed in, in, your, in your marriage, every time, what you're doing is this. You are reminding yourselves and the other person of the covenant that you made with each other. You're reminding yourselves of the covenant that you have with one another you are demonstrating that you are picturing it you are saying again we are completely vulnerable with each other we're completely open and honest with each other and we completely accept one another god has always placed a high value on this act of marriage so going back to jesus teaching here if you look at me in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 32, he says, whoever, or you've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, just simply let him give him a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You've heard it said, if you're not happy... Get rid of her. Divorce her. Divorce him. Get out of the marriage. But I say that you are to stay together, period. And then there is what's known as this exception clause. He says, except for, or except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now that word right there is porneus. It's a word that simply means sexual immorality. There's a lot of debate as to what what that word means. It's an ongoing conversation. Feel free to grab a commentary, read up on it. But I want to make some general observations, some general thoughts. It seems that what Jesus is saying here is that if there is this Porneia, if whatever this pornea is, if there is this pornea, then that constitutes a biblical divorce. And then let's just follow this: if there is a biblical divorce, then there can be a biblical remarriage. Now, someone might say, "How broad is this? Is lust, for instance, is lust considered pornea?" Now, while lust is sexual immorality. And lust is equal as far as, as far as the condemning nature of it. It's equal with the sin of idolatry. We just saw that last week. It is, I don't believe it's possible that Jesus here is referring to lust as pornea. Otherwise, Jesus would simply be saying this. Everybody's free to get a divorce. Because he just kind of used lust to show us the depth of, the, of, of sin and to say, hey, stop looking down on those who have had adultery, committed adultery, because, by the way, lust is the very same sin. So he's condemned all of us. What, Jesus is not making it easier for us to get a divorce here. He's not, he's not giving us, everybody, a green light to go and get a divorce because. We have all lusted at some point in some fashion. Jesus here, I believe, is referring to the act of marriage. Pornea. I think we can understand pornea as a perversion of the act of marriage. Taking the act of marriage that God has created for a man and a woman to enjoy Together, to be reminded of their flesh, to come together as one flesh, to take that and place it outside in any form, to place that outside, to come together, all right, complete nakedness, sharing of one another, to come together with another person breaks that seal. And so if this act of marriage is indeed a seal, if that is essentially in some ways what marries us, that's what brings us together as one flesh. To perform the act with another other than your spouse is to break that seal. And so here then, Jesus permits divorce in the ground of sexual immorality, porneia, a perversion of this act of marriage. Adultery. Adultery. Now, something that we need to point out here is that Jesus' point in even teaching on this is not for us to ask ourselves, how can I get out of our mar- my marriage? I, I will say, I think most of the time that I am in conversations with folks about this, it has to do more along the lines with, how do I get out of this thing? Like, is, did, what, what, what my wife did or what my husband did, does that constitute as pornea? Can I get out of it? Biblically, like is it okay? That's not Jesus' purpose here. He's not showing us how we can get out. As a matter of fact, let me say this. Judaism, in the Mishnah we see this, Judaism required divorce for adultery. Jesus merely permits it. Jesus merely permits it. And so we see then that God has an extremely high value placed on this act of marriage between a man and a woman within the confines of marriage, it is there to bring them together as one flesh so that they may glorify God and make much of God through their union, through their reminding themselves of the covenant of love that they have with one another, this lifelong one flesh covenant and Jesus permits here divorce in the case of a perversion of that one sac- or one flesh covenant. Relationship, God permits it because, we find later, because humanity has a hard heart. Because we are cold. Because there is sin in this world. Because we are a smoking flax that God will not quench. You see, friends, the Bible is the most realistic book there is. It deals with life as we know it. It deals with the decisions that we face in this world life and it permits heartbreak and loss because we have heartbreak and loss however i wonder if we took these teachings of jesus seriously these teachings on marriage and divorce and remarriage, I wonder how this might transform our own marriage. I wonder how we might stop looking to our spouse for satisfaction and happiness and fulfillment. And I wonder how this might change the way that we value sex within our marriage. How we, how we look at that, that, that beautiful act with one another. Is that just simply for our pleasure? Or is this to draw us into worship? To draw us back into love with one another. I wonder how we might protect this outside of our marriage. For those of you who are currently single, I wonder how taking Jesus' teaching here on marriage and divorce and remarriage, how this might prepare you to be married in your mind in the way that you see a dating relationship, in the way that you see someone that you are attracted to and would like to marry, I wonder how this would transform that. I wonder how this would transform the way that you love your brothers and sisters who are married in the way that you counsel them. Friends, do you counsel your brother or sister who is in a marriage and not happy? Do you counsel them rightly? Or do you Agree with them. Yeah, if you're not happy. Who's to judge? How do we counsel each other? How do we love our brothers and sisters on this issue? I wonder if we took Jesus', Jesus teaching seriously, if that would change that single folks. I wonder if it would change the way that you are content in your singleness. If we begin to see marriage not as, as the end-all, be-all of happiness but rather as a new tool that God uses in our sanctification process to make us more holy. I wonder if that would change and we may be more content in our singleness, which is yet just simply another tool that God uses in your sanctification process to make you more holy and rely completely on Him. Now, all of this leads us to our final lesson here. This broader teaching on commitment as a whole. Let's look at it. The, the third lesson is this. God has always desired His people to be a people of their word. God has always desired His people to be a people of their word. Look at it in verse 33. Again, you've heard it said, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven or for it is the throne of God or by earth, for it is the footstool by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath on your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. What's he saying here? Jesus is addressing this issue of easy yeses, easy commitments, easy oaths. The context is everything here. In Jesus' day, it had be, because the law said, if you swear an oath to God, then you have to keep it. What they were doing, in their culture, they had, they had created this elaborate system which says that you can get out of an oath based on a technicality. So if you make an oath and you swear something to someone that you will do something or be at their barbecue or whatever it is, if you use God's name in the oath that you make, so if you say, say I swear by the God of heavens that I'll be there, then you are like bound to it. You better be there because you use God's name in your earth. But if you take God's name out of it and you say, I swear by heaven or I swear by earth or I swear by my own head that I'll be there. Well, then you have a, this technicality. You, that means I might be there. I don't know. Like We'll see. I'm not sure what I'm doing tonight. What he's saying is simply this. That's, that's like ridiculous. All right? Because who made the heavens? Who made the earth? Who made your head? Who turns your hair from black to gray? You see the point? So he says, look, don't even make an oath. You're being ridiculous. Just simply be people who say yes, and you mean yes. And guys, we do this today, don't we? Like if I invite you to my barbecue, and you say, yeah, I'll be there. No, you won't. Don't lie to me. I know you won't be there. You're just saying that so you don't hurt me. It hurts me more when you don't show up. Amen? Man. But then if we really mean it, we say, oh, I swear I will be there. And that means I might. I'm like really planning on coming. But if something comes up, I don't know. But then if we're like, I love barbecue. Like, I swear to God I will be there and I'm bringing ketchup or something, then that means I really think they're going to come. Like, we're actually going to put your name on the, on the list. You'll prob- but if you don't show up, well, you know, something, stuff comes up. Right? Guys, we, we, have, we struggle with this as a, as a culture. It's bad. It is really, really bad. Let your yes simply... Mean? Yes. Stop promising things. Stop promising. I was talking with my girls about this. We were, we were working through this section as a family during our family worship time. And, and, uh, and I said, What is it? When you guys are like really mean something, what do you do? And they, they said, We pink, pinky swear. Why do we have to pinky swear? Amen. Like, does that somehow mean I'm really more serious? Like, I would. Otherwise, I'm kind of lying. I mean, that's essentially what we're saying. Because our yes does not mean yes, then we have to pinky swear. Pinky promise. Because our yes does not mean yes, then we have to swear, say, I swear to God I will be there. We have to try to make people believe that we're actually telling the truth this time because we said yes so many other times and we didn't mean it. Just simply be people of your Word. Jesus wants the citizens of His kingdom to be people of His Word. That's the way we're designed to be. That's our commandment. That's the way we need to be. We need to be people who just simply say yes and mean yes. Now imagine how this would transform things if we were. Imagine if no one ever broke a promise to you. Imagine if even within this church, if everybody meant yes when they said yes, we would never lack for volunteers at block parties. House communities and small groups would be filled every week. Discipleship plans would be carried through. Our yes would simply mean yes. We would submit ourselves to the discipline of the church and we would mean that. Our yes would simply mean yes. Yes. But friends, as I said, the Bible is the most realistic book. It doesn't uh, in no way believe that we live in a pie-in-the-sky kind of world. The reality is, is we live in a world where people say yes, where sometimes we say yes, and we fall, we slip. We don't mean it. We break our promises. We break our marriage covenants. We break our yeses. And we break our knows. We live in a world where marriages do fall apart. Where rings are handed back. Where parents promise to do things for their kids and it never comes to fruition. Where people who promise to be there for you fall through. Now look, as as much as this shows us life as it should be, as it is in the kingdom, as much as it shows us this beautiful picture of this this world that we are invited into, it also shows us this. It shows us who we are. It shows us our utter failings. Our utter failures. Our lack of commitment. Our lack of ability to say yes. And as much as it points us to something that's beautiful, that much more it points us to the fact that we are in need of something more than just simply our actions. We are in need of a righteousness that is beyond ourselves. We are in need of a Savior. See, this is describing life as a citizen of the kingdom of God. As much as it's doing that, it's a description of Christ. It's Christ describing his own righteousness, his own perfection. A Christian is not just simply someone who knows that they're not perfect. A Christian is someone who knows that they need a Savior. You see, guys, we are not left with just the demands of the law. God hasn't given this to us and has given us a word. Now go and see if you can earn your way into the kingdom. We are not left with the demands of the law. We are not left with these commands and then the response, if you don't do these, you're going to be punished. What we're left with at the end of the sermon, what we're left with is Christ. Why should we refuse sexual recklessness in our lives? Why should we refuse to take our marriage covenants Poorly. Why should we refuse to be people who break our commitments and break our promises? Who have a yes that simply means yes. Is it because we will be punished if we don't? Listen, this phrase, because you'll be punished, is in fact too small of a phrase to motivate us. It's not enough to motivate us, to holiness. Here is our motivation. There's a story in the Bible of a man named Hosea. And God came to Hosea and told Hosea that I want to, through your life, I want to show the world, I want to show Israel just how much I love them. And so what he told Hosea to do was to find a prostitute and marry her. So Hosea went and he found this prostitute named Gomer and he married her. And he was told to stay married to her. I want Israel to see how much I love them. It wasn't long before, Hosea, or before Gomer was back on the streets working the corner, selling herself. And it went... Downhill from there. It wasn't long before she had a baby. And Hosea named the baby Loami, which means not mine. This sort, sort of culmination. She's standing on the auction block. She's being auctioned off, most likely in that culture, maybe being sold into sexual slavery. I I imagine in my mind what it might have been like as she's standing there. She's hearing the voices of these men who are offering their price for her. And then above all of the voices, she hears the voice of her husband who says, I will pay more than anyone else is willing to pay. And he throws down more money, essentially, than anyone in that day would be willing to pay for a slave. He buys her out of her sin for a great price. You see, guys, this is the picture of God's relationship with His people. This is the picture of our turning and Christ's pursuing us. You see, as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, what we are constantly left with is this realization that we are not faithful. That we are constantly looking the other direction. That we are called to be faithful. We're called to be holy. Yet we are constantly slipping. The picture, though, that we have of God's relationship with us is the Father giving us His Son, the Bride. Presenting us to Him as His Bride. We are a flirtatious, drifting bride. She sells herself for a cheap price. It's not long before she's standing on the street corner again, looking for happiness in other places, being sold for a cheap cost looking the other way, walking the streets. She drifts from him. She leaves the house. She's a spiritual adulterer. She is called to be faithful. She's called to remain faithful. To love him. To look to him constantly. Yet she slips. She falls away. And what does Christ do? Does Christ hand her a certificate of divorce? Christ has every right to. Even in His own teaching, has every right to. Yet what we see in Christ is a love beyond human comprehension. What we see in Christ is He actively pursues her and woos her even though she continues to turn, even though she is being auctioned off. She hears the voice of her husband cry out, I'll pay more than anyone else is willing to pay. And He gives, to, give, gives for her His very own life. He pays His blood so He can buy her out of slavery. And what's more is that on that cross, her unfaithfulness, her wandering, her drifting, her spiritual adultery, her guilt was placed onto him. And her husband took that guilt upon himself. Bore the wrath of the Father. and He died. And rising from the dead, he buried that guilt. He buried her unfaithfulness. He buried... That drifting, he buried that sense of wandering, that sense of longing for something more. He completely removed from her her guilt and what's even more is that he then gifted her his faithfulness. Gifted her his perfection. Gifted her his ability to be committed. Gifted her his glory, his wonder perfection Christ looks at his bride he says i've bought you with a great price and you are mine you are mine and i am yours i love you you are my spotless bride Listen, guys, I want you to be encouraged by this. God looks at the Christian who struggles with flirtation, flirtatious activity, constantly looking at other things, constantly walking away, doubting his love, doubting whether or not he cares for him, constantly slipping. God looks at the Christian in your state as you currently are with all of your doubts and all of your lack of feelings and all of your sin and because of the blood of Christ, what He sees is perfect faithfulness, perfect commitment because He sees your husband Christ whose blood has been shed for the forgiveness of of your sins. And you then are freed to be faithful. You're freed to be faithful in this world. You're freed. It makes sense now to be faithful in our marriage because Christ was committed to us and He is faithful to us. Faithfulness simply makes sense. Commitment makes sense because we are part of this ultimate love story in, in which God, even though we were not committed to Him, God was committed and is committed and will remain committed to you until He brings you home to glory. He's not losing His bride. Amen? He has bought you and you are His. It makes sense to love others because He loves you. It makes sense to say yes and mean it because He has said a resounding yes to you. God, friends, God is our lover. And from the very beginning, He has pursued our hearts. From the very beginning, He has wooed us to Himself and Christ has come into this world and He has died to win back His bride and as He died on the cross, He took our flirtations. He took our lack of commitment and He opened the doors. And the doors are open for every spiritual adulterer to be joined to Christ. Listen, as God spoke to you this morning, as God spoke, have you heard the voice of your husband cry out, I have bought you! You are mine! Look to Christ. Look to Christ, your husband, to be forgiven by His blood. To be presented without spot or wrinkle. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank You for this wonderful message of grace and love that You have communicated to us through the, the, the reality of Christ coming into this world, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, showing us, proving to us that we can trust Him. God, I do ask that You move in us, that You continue to woo us. God, as we believe that You are committed to us, that You are not going to let us go, I pray that You continue to turn our hearts toward You so that we may grow in our commitment to You. And God, from that place from that place of, just, uh, of gratitude and thanksgiving for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pray that we then will turn and love our neighbor, that we will love our wives, love our husbands, love our friends, that we will protect the, the, the wonder of, of, of uh, this, this act of marriage that you have given us, this, this gift of marriage, that we will protect the gift of singleness which you have given us. God, that we will be people of our word that reflect your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.